So, uh, once again, uh, we find ourselves between two studies. Um, I don't know how jo- uh, Job went by that fast, uh, but it did, and we are getting ready to start another study. Um, but as I usually do, I'm not quite ready to start. Um, I still need another week or so. So we're going to do something a little bit different um, today uh, while I get ready for our, for our next study. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Amazing Bible. Now, I first did this lesson uh, for teenagers uh, probably eight, ten years ago. Uh, when I did it then, I, it took me three weeks to go through it. Uh, I'm going to do it in one uh, lesson. So uh, I, I'm going to leave a lot of stuff out that I, that I did from the originals. Um, if anybody wants the originals, I can, uh, I can give you all three originals. There's a lot of information in those that are not in this one today. Uh, but I didn't want to. I didn't really want to go more than um, you know. You know more than, than a week here. Now I want to say this. I'm gonna I'm gonna present you today with some really interesting stuff. Um, when I saw some of this stuff for the first time, I was literally astounded. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" And um, but the fact is, anything I present you today is not going to prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God. In in Matthew 17. Jesus asked Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. You didn't come to that through proof. You didn't come to that through reasoning. You didn't come to that uh, through the wisdom of man. God himself, the Holy Spirit, revealed that to you. Let me tell you, if you stand here today, and I, I will tell you, I believe that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. I believe that way in the deepest part of me, but I didn't get there because somebody proved it. I got there because the Holy Spirit convinced me of that. God revealed that to me. And if you think that, if you believe like I do, that's a God revelation. You can't prove to somebody that this is the Word of God. You just can't do it. And I'm not trying to do that. But as believers, you should know that what you have put your trust in, what you've put your eternal destiny, you know, you've staked your eternal destiny on this book, it is uh, re- reliable. Now, I was reading the other day in the newspaper that over in China, they're re-editing the Bible, um, and, and they're going to have a, they're gonna have a state, uh, uh, state-approved Bible <laughs> And uh, so they're just attacking the Word of God. And I was thinking then, you know, attacks on the Bible are nothing new. There was a guy by the name of Diocletian who was a Roman emperor. And in the, uh, in the 4th century, uh, he decided he was going to wipe out Christianity and wipe out the, the Bible. And so he issued proclamations for Christians to be killed. Uh, he, he, he sent out uh, troops across the nation. And the idea, you find every Bible, you find every manuscript, and you, you burn it. In fact, he killed so many Christians and he burned so many Bibles. They, they literally put up a monument called Extincto Nominium Christianorium. It literally means the name of Christians has been extinguished. So let me tell you, he's extinct, but the Bible's not, right? The Bible's still here. Uh, 200 years ago in early American history, Voltaire said, 50 years from now, the world will hear no more of the Bible. Thomas Paine said, when I get through, there won't be five Bibles uh, left in, in, in America. 
Yet it's estimated that the number of Bibles printed between 1816 and 1975 was 2.5 billion. And since then, that number has rose to 7.5 billion or more. Worldwide sales of the Bible continue every single year to be 100 million. 100 million Bibles sold every single year. It's been translated into over 450 languages. It is by far, by far, it's not even close, the best-selling book of all time. So there've been, they've tried to wipe it out. And in fact, the Chinese are, are kind of smart, right? You can't wipe it out. That has failed over and over and over and over again. So what they've done is they've changed the plan. And so what they do is they say, well, the Bible, it's got errors in it. It's got inaccuracies in it. Because if they can, if they can just convince you that it's got some inaccuracies, well, how do you know where those are? How do you know what to trust, what not to trust? It just, it just, it completely can destroy people in their faith if you can, if you can get that across to him. And I'll give you an example of how they do this. In 1989, uh, Larry King, I don't know if that show's even, I don't watch it anymore, but that, I'm not sure if that show's even on. But Larry King at the time had a guest by the name of Shirley MacLaine. Y'all remember, some of y'all remember her and the New Age movement and all of that junk and, there was a time where that was really big. So he had her on the show. And, and on the show, she was talking about the New Age movement, and a caller called in, because uh, it was a call-in show. And the caller started to refute some of the things she was saying by referring to the New Testament. And this is what she said. She said, well, you know, the Bible, it's been translated and changed so many times over the past 2,000 years that Nobody knows what it really said in the, in, the, in, in the beginning. It's impossible to have any confidence in the Bible. And Larry King is like, oh yeah, everybody knows that, right? Have you, have you heard statements like that over the years? I mean, how can we know? I mean, it's 2,000 years. There were no computers back then, no printing presses. I mean, who knows? That, people make mistakes and those kind of things. So that, you know, that phrase, the Bible's been translated so many times, that is probably the most frequent objection that gets tossed out when somebody starts quoting the Bible. It's an easy thing to say. You can stand up and say, the Bible says, and they'll say, oh, come on, man. Nobody knows what the Bible really says. It's been copied and translated so many times. Is that true? Have we ever stopped and asked, okay, stop one minute. Is that true? See, our faith, our very lives, our, our destiny depends on this book. I've staked my life on that book. My marriage is based on that book. My, I'm a father based on that book. I'm a, I'm, I'm a man. Everything I do is based on that book. I've staked everything on it. If I'm wrong, I'm in big trouble. I gotta know that book is reliable. I gotta know that that book is trustworthy. Now, here's the thing. The Bible itself is an ancient document, okay? I mean, it was written, literally the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago. Now, because of that, it can actually be tested. You may not know that, but you can actually test this book just like you can any other ancient document. And there are three basic tests that uh, academics or scientists can apply to documents to determine their reliability and their authenticity. These three tests are called the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. So I'm going to walk through these three with you, and I'm going to show you how scholars, how academics can actually test this book to see if what is written in it is 
true and reliable and, and, and authentic. The first one is the bibliographical test. Now, the argument against the reliability of, of this book can be stated very simply, and I've already stated it once, I'll state it again. How can we know that the documents that we have today in our possession, how can we know that they accurately reflect what was written 2,000 years ago? Now, today I'm going to focus on just on the New Testament. Because the New Testament, let's face it, it's all about Jesus. It's all about redemption and atonement and salvation. This is how we're saved, by what this book says. So that's what I'm going to focus on today. How can we know that when this Bible says something in the New Testament, how can we know that it accurately reflects what was written down almost 2,000 years ago? Because, by the way, we don't have those originals. We don't have the original letter to Ephesus that Paul wrote. That's gone. We don't have the original Gospel of John. That's, that's long gone. How do we know that the copies of those letters, how do we know that they reflect the same thing that was written in the original? After all, listen, we know we're human beings, right? People make mistakes. That, that's, that's, just, uh, that's absolutely true. Communication is never, uh, is never perfect. So a lot of people will say, well, look, it should be obvious to us that when you have human beings copying one thing, they're going to make mistakes. They're, uh, over the centuries, uh, errors are going to be compounded, right? By the time 2,000 years go by, who knows what was in the original, right? We don't, we don't really have a, of a clue. Now, that, when you use that argument, most people, that sounds very reasonable. And here's why. Because as a kid, we all played that game telephone. Y'all remember the game telephone? That's very reasonable, right? Uh, we all played that game as kids, and we know how that game worked, right? You, 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 you got people in a room, you sat around in a circle, and somebody whispered in person A's ear. And then person, and they said something, right? And then person A tells person B, person B tells person C, on down the line, and you get all the way down to the last person, and they tell what was said, and, it, and it's funny because it ends up not being what the original. Everybody, y'all, y'all all familiar with that, right? We've all played that game. So, most people think, well, that's how the Bible was passed down. And so when you say that, they're like, oh, yeah, the Bible's got to have a bunch of errors in it. So just a very simple comparison to the telephone game is, is, is enough to convince the casual skeptic that, you know what, you're probably right. This new, we got no idea what this book actually says. And so they'll think it's unreliable. But here's the thing. The telephone game is not at all how the Bible was passed down. There are two major differences between how the Bible was passed down and how the telephone game works. The telephone game is what's called linear. One person tells another, who tells another, who tells another. The Bible was passed down geometrically. Now, here's what I mean by that. When Paul would write a letter to Ephesus, he'd write one letter and he'd, he'd send it to Ephesus. Well, the Ephesus church at Ephesus would read it and they'd say, man, we've got to send this to some other churches. So they would sit down and make five copies. And then they would send those five copies to five churches. Well, then the, the church over here would read it, and they'd say, man, we need to send this to ten other churches. So they'd make, everybody with me? So one copy would become five copies, would become 25 copies, which would become 200 copies. See, it's not linear. It's not one to the next to the next. It's geometric. Okay, so that's the first big difference. The second big difference is that this was passed down in writing, not orally. Okay? This was written down. And written manuscripts can be tested in a way that oral or verbal stories cannot be. 
tape. So I'm going to show you today. So today I'm going to show you how scientists do a test. I'm going to show you how scholars can confidently reconstruct. And by the way, that's their words. How they can confidently reconstruct from copies what was said in the original, even if, even if copies have mistakes in them or have differences. Now, to give you this example, I'm going to use Aunt Sally's recipe. Okay, so let's say that Aunt Sally has this cookie recipe that she came up with on her own. And this is, these are the best cookies you've ever had in your life. I mean, they are unbelievable. She wins all the prizes at the, at the county fairs, and, and everybody just talks about her, her cookies, right? And, and she's real secretive about it. She won't give anybody the recipe because and, and, she likes the attention she gets from her cookies and all this. But one day as she's getting old, uh, she decides, you know what? It's probably not fair for me to have this one recipe. I've got three kids. And so she sits down and she makes copies of her cookie recipe for her three children. Now there are how many copies out there? There are four, right? Now, her children, they're not near, they love her cookies just like uh, Aunt Sally loves her cookies, but they're not near as uh, particular about it. And so they all have three children. So they think, well, I'm going to pass down Mama's recipe. And so they make copies of that and they give it to all of their three children. And then, of course, by the time you get to the fourth generation, they're all making copies for cousins and aunts and uncles and kids and grandkids. And there's just copies. Are you with me? See, that's exactly how the Bible got done, how the New Testament got, got propagated. Now, over the years, of course, things happen, right? Recipes, people move. Recipe was in a box. You get to the new house, where's that recipe? Can't find the book. Things get lost. And so by the time you get down to the great-grandchildren, by the time you get down to the fourth generation, almost all of those recipes are, are lost. In fact, if you look at it, there's only 11 left. Only 11 copies floating around. And so one of the great-grandchildren decides one day, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get all... So they, they get on Facebook and they start contacting all the family of, of, of Aunt Sally and, and uh, they gather up 11... They find 11 copies of this recipe. Now when they look at the recipe, they find something out. They find that seven of them are exactly the same. Three of them have misspelled words and in one of them... The, they changed it. There was a, a, it was a quarter cup or half a cup of honey, and they, they changed it to a quarter cup of honey. Okay? Seven are exactly the thing, same. Three have misspelled words, and one of them has been changed from a half a cup to a quarter cup or vice versa. Now, you tell me, do you think I could put Aunt Sally's recipe back together? Sure. Right? I mean, th- misspelled words, who cares? Right? Seven of them are exactly the same. And the only change, if, if, if 10 out of the 11 use a half a cup of honey and one of them says a quarter cup, which one do you think is right? Are you with me? Let me tell you, that is exactly how the science of textual criticism works. There is a science out there that academics practice called textual criticism. And that's exactly what they do. They go find all the copies and they compare them. And which one is the oldest? These are academics, okay? And they reconstruct a missing original what's called the autograph or the original copy or the original uh, letter or whatever the case may be, they reconstruct that from all of these copies, even if the copies have uh, differences in them. According to New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, this is his uh, description of, of textual criticism, he says this, "...the purpose of textual criticism is to determine as exactly as possible from the available evidence 
the original works of the documents in question. Okay? Now, the ability of any of these scholars to effectively do their work depends on two things. Number one, how many copies do you have? Listen, if, if we went out to Aunt Sally's recipe and we found one copy, could we? Fi- was there any chance of figuring out what the original is? Not really, is it? it? I mean, we got one copy. So how many copies you have matters. Would that make sense to y'all? Do you have two copies? Do you have a hundred copies? Do you have a thousand? The more copies you have, the better your chance is of figuring out what the original said. So that's the first thing. Second is, what's the oldest copy that you have? Would we all agree that the older a copy is, the closer it was to the original, the better chance it's true? Everybody with me? Obviously, the shorter time frame. So, for example, go back to uh, Aunt Sally's recipe. Guess what? One of the copies we got is the one she made in her own hand for her daughter. Would we put more weight on that? Absolutely, because her own mama gave it to her. So we would look at that one and say, you know what? That carries a lot more weight than one of these copies, the great-grandchildren. So, so the closer you can get back to the original, the more confidence you have. Now, before we get to the New Testament, I'm going to give you, I'm going to look at some non-biblical texts. Because when I first saw this years ago, I was, I was blown out of the water. Absolutely blown out of the water by what I'm about to show you. I'm going to give you some examples of ancient documents, some of them written before the New Testament. I'm going to give you some examples of ancient documents that scientists, if you ask a, a scientist, they would say, oh yeah, absolutely, that is, we have a high degree of confidence that that is the original. Okay, So here's a few of them. The first one is a book called The History of Thucydides. Okay, as a guy uh, back in the uh, about 400 years before Christ, his name was Thucydides. Um, he wrote a book called The History of Thucydides. We have eight copies of that book, eight copies. And the oldest copy we have, there's a time gap of 1,300 years. Everybody with me? So if you go back and find the oldest copy, it's dated 900 AD, 1,300 years after the fact. Now, scientists, textual critics, textual critics say, you know what? Even though that we've only got eight copies, and even though there's 1,300 years, we believe that we can accurately reproduce what the original said. Everybody with me? Okay, let me give you another one. Aristotle's Poems. This was a book written by Aristotle in 343 B.C. We have five copies, and the time gap between the original and the oldest copy is 1,400 years. 1,400 years, and yet textual critics say they can reproduce that accurately. Let me give you another one. The Jewish War, Josephus. I've got a copy of this at home in in my office. It was written in 1st century A.D., same time as the New Testament. Okay, In fact, it was written, I mean, right around the same time. We have nine copies, and the time gap, here we go, 400 years. Getting better, right? We're going from 1,500 years to 1,200 years to to 400 years. Let me give you another one. The Annals of Imperial Rome, written by a guy named Tacitus in the first century AD, same time as the Bible. We only have two partial manuscripts, and the, and the oldest copy we have was written in the Middle Ages. So there's a thousand years from the time he wrote it to the copy that we have. How about the history of the Gallic Wars, written by a guy named Julius Caesar? It was written in 58 to 50 B.C., about 100 years before the New Testament. We have 10 copies. 
and the time gap between when he wrote it and the oldest copy that we have is 1000 AD. So it's about a thousand years. I could go on and give you more. Pliny the Younger's Natural History, seven copies, 750 years gap. Herodotus History, eight manuscripts, 1,350 years. Plato, seven manuscripts, 1,300 years. So as, you, as we go back and we look at all these books that are written around the time of the Bible, you can see that for most of them, we got a, literally a handful of copies, right? And the time gap is anywhere from 400 years to 1,500 years. Yet scholars are confident, that's their words, confident of reconstructing the original with a high degree of accuracy. Now let me give you the second best preserved work in history. Homer's Iliad. Anybody had to read the Iliad in, in high school? Yeah, I feel for you. Um, it is the second best preserved work in all of, of, of antiquity. It has, get ready, 643 copies. Is that good? It's good. We're going from 6 and 8 and 9 and 5 to Homer's Iliad has 643 copies. If the Iliad is number 2 with 643, what do you think is number 1? The New Testament has 25,000 copies. Not 8, not 10, not 643, 25,000 manuscripts. F.F. Bruce says this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. In other words, there is no other book like this. When it comes to ancient documents, there is no book like this. Now let me get... Let's talk, get into the specific lines. There are 20,000 lines in the New Testament. 20,000. In the entire New Testament, there are only 40 lines that are disputed. 40. That is, I think, one quarter of 1% of the Bible is even disputed. Okay. Now, you can compare that. There are 743 lines in the Iliad that, there, that people are not sure about. Now, when I first pointed that out, to some of the students that I was teaching this to, that made them a little nervous. Well, there's, uh, there's 40 lines. Well, what are those 40 lines? Again, they only represent one quarter of 1%, and those 40 lines do not in any way affect the teaching and the doctrine of the New Testament. Let me give you an example. One of the scriptures or the verses that is, that is disputed is Matthew 17, 21. It says this, This kind does not come out, except by prayer and fasting. Now, when you read this in your Bible, a lot of times you'll notice a little note out by that verse. And if you look down in the notes, you'll see this NU-text omits this verse. Do anybody ever notice that in your Bible? And you have no clue what that means? What that is saying is the oldest known text, the oldest known copies that we have do not have that verse in them. So they went as far back as they could and they found copies that did not have that verse in it. Okay, but here's the thing. That same verse turns up in Mark 9, 29. He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but fasting and prayer. That verse is not disputed at all. That was in all the oldest copies. Everybody with me? Let's look at another example. Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That verse is disputed. 
you'll see a little comment in your Bible, in you text amidst this verse. That means, once again, the oldest copies of the Bible that we have of the New Testament do not have that verse. But in Luke 19, 20, it says this, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's in all the oldest copies. That's not, that verse is not disputed at all. I'll give you one more. Luke 17, 36. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Once again, you look at that in your Bible. You'll find a little note in there that says, In you text omits this verse. Matthew 24, 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other be left. Not disputed at all. So even the verses that are disputed have no effect on our doctrine because we have other verses that are... Everybody with me? Very important that we understand that. There are a few other verses that are disputed that have really no effect on anything. For example, Acts 15, 34, Notwithstanding it, please Silas to abide there still. <laughs> okay. Or Acts 28, 20, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Does that have any effect on our teaching or doctrine about salvation? No, not at all. So whether that's disputed or not. Here's a really neat thing about the Bible. What if today we, all the copies that we had were destroyed? 25,000 copies were destroyed. What if we lost every single one of them today? Bruce Metzger said this, If all the other sources for our, new, our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed the quotations of the church fathers would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So in the early church, uh, there were these men called the church fathers. They were the early bishops and, and people that resided over the church. And they would write things. They would write books. They would write letters. And in those books and letters, they would quote the New Testament. Are you with me? They quote, this is what Jesus said. This is what Paul said. Bruce Metzger said, if you got rid of all the copies that we ever had, 25,000 copies, you could just go to their letters, just go to their books where they quoted, and you could reconstruct the entire New Testament without a single copy. In fact, to get specific, all of the New Testament except 11 minor verses can be reconstructed from the writings of the early church leaders from the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. if you had no copies at all. Now... Let's get down to the oral gap. We, I can tell you pretty much clearly that what you've got here is exactly what was written in those early letters. You don't have to worry about that one, one bit. But what if, before it got written down, there was a big time frame? Are you with me? Are we talking about a thousand years? Are we talking about 500 years before somebody actually wrote the Gospels or, or, or somebody actually wrote these things down? So that's what we want to look at now is what's called the oral gap between the time Jesus actually died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, and these things were written down in the New Testament. Was that gap so big that error or legend could have, could have kind of crept in? Now, there was a guy that lived uh, back in the uh, 1800s. His name was F.C. Bauer, and he was a very famous Bible theologian and a, and a very famous Bible critic. And he introduced a lot of doubts. He believed that most of the New Testament was not written till the late 2nd century, after Paul had died and Peter had died and John had died and all these, all these men had died. So he thought there was at least 150 years went by to the time this was written down. Everybody with me? Okay. And so he said, you know what? Yeah, we've got the original writings, 
But the problem was there was so much time before it got written down that a lot of error got in. A lot of legend crept in. Okay, so we have to address that. Now, as time went on, remember, he died in 1860. And as time went on, they kept finding Bohr manuscripts. They kept making these digs over in, over in the Middle East and over in Rome, and they'd uncover a room, and wow, here's another manuscript. They just kept uncovering more and more. And that 150-year gap got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and by the way, this was all science doing this, not, not you and I. William Albright in Christianity Today said this, In my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and 80s of the first century A.D., very probably sometime between 50 and 75 A.D. Now what that means, that all of the New Testament was written down and done between 10 to 50 years after Jesus died. 10 to 50 years after he died. Now, here's the important thing about that. That's not nearly enough time for legend to creep in. Let me give you an example here. Let's look at John F. Kennedy. As of today, John F. Kennedy's been dead 56 years. Okay? What if somebody started, uh, put a story in the newspaper or, or started passing a story around that, John, that JFK was sinless, that, that JFK was crucified on a cross, that JFK was, cruci- was raised from the dead? Just started passing a story, put out a, put out a documentary. What would be your reaction to that? You'd say what? That's, that's baloney. Well, how do you know? He's been dead 56 years, right? That's shouldn't... Well, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the problem with that. You can't get away with it because you knew him, right? You were alive when the man died. You knew some of the things that he did. And by the way, I visited his grave. Some of you may have been to Arlington, and I know where the man's buried. See, 50 years, we think of that's a long time. That's nothing when it comes, because you've still got living witnesses. If you say things like Jesus was raised from the dead, they would just say, well, let's go over here where they put him. Let's open this up. Right? Well, let's go talk to these, let's go talk to these people who, were, who, were, who saw him after he was dead. So you can't get away with stuff like that because there's still witnesses uh, around. So for us, it may seem like a long time. For, for myth and legend to come into a story, you literally need generations to go by. You need centuries to go by. But the gospel stories were collected and written down in one generation. That's not near enough, not near enough for any kind of uh, myth or legend to creep in. William Albright says this, A period of 10 to 50 years is too slight to permit any appreciable corruption of the essential content and even of the specific wordings and the sayings of Jesus. So if you, when scientists apply the bibliographical test, we can see that what we have passed down to us is exactly what was written down in the originals. Now, we still got another issue. You have to prove, well, is it credible? They could have wrote it down, you know, 10 years after Jesus died, but is it, is it credible? And so this is what's called, this takes us to something called the internal evidence test. Um, let me give you, a, this is some writings from the Hindu sacred writings. The moon is 50,000 leagues higher than the sun and shines by its own light. Night is caused by the sun setting behind a huge mountain several thousand feet high, 
located in the center of the earth. The world is flat and triangular and is composed of seven stages, one of honey, another of sugar, a third of butter, and another of wine. And the whole mass is born on the heads of countless elephants, which in shaking produce earthquakes. That is the, the Hindu Bible. That's what the Hindu Bible says. See, you've got to keep in mind that if there's even one statement in this book that's wrong, if there's even one statement in this book that is contradicted by science or contradicted by archaeological facts, this book is discredited completely. Just one. We don't need 50. We just need one. Because I sit here and say there's no error in this book. One wrong fact, but there's not even one. There's not one. You can't find one. Now, people over the years have thought that. You know, remember back in the, in the, in the early Middle Ages, the, the, the church was teaching that the earth was flat. Well, that's just because they didn't read the Bible. The Bible's never said that at all. Isaiah 40, uh, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. You know, we, we talked about the Big Bang Theory back in the 60s that figured out finally the earth, the, the universe is expanding. Well, it's the Bible that says he stretches it out like a curtain. The science is just catching up with the Bible. You see that over and over again. Luke 17, 31. This was written 2,000 years ago. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Which is this going to be? Is it going to be day or is it going to be night? Well, it's both, right? Because on one side of the world, it's day and the other side of the world. See, the Bible always knows what it's talking about. It's not trying to pull anything over. Genesis 17, 12, I've used this before, says this, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your... So the, the Jews were told you always circumcise your male children on the eighth day. Now, what is it about the eighth day? Is it some kind of spiritual number that God came up with? It's got some kind of special significance? No. Medical researchers in the 1930s discovered that the two main blood clotting factors, vitamin K and prothrombin, reached their highest level in a male's life on the eighth day. After that, they start to go down. Blood clotting and vitamin K on the eighth day. See, guys, listen, that is the amazing Bible. That is the one day where you, they have the, a male child has the most ability to fight off infection, to, 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 to clot the blood. Uh, any, in fact, even today, any circumcision done earlier than eight days requires an injection of vitamin K supplements. See, that's the amazing Bible. How about testimony? It's another internal evidence. The ability to tell or relate something truthfully is closely related to how near you are to the events, right? Geographically and chronologically. In both of these areas, the Bible is unparalleled. The account of Jesus' life and teachings were recorded by men who were eyewitnesses or, or very close to eyewitnesses. For example, Luke chapter 1, he said this, "...inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Second Peter 1.16, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses 
of His majesty. Verse John 1, 3, That which we have seen and touched and heard, we declare to you. See, they, weren't only eye, they were not only eyewitnesses, but when they would relay a story, they would give very specific. You ever read the Bible and notice how they're very specific about dates and times and people and places? See, if you're making something up, you don't insert that into your story. Listen to Luke 3, 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Listen, if you make something up, you don't do that, right? He wants you to know exactly, exactly what was going on when Jesus Christ was born into this world. Not only that, when they would advocate their case for the gospel, they would even appeal to their opponents. And they would literally look their opponents in the eye and say, you know what I'm saying is true. Listen to Paul when he goes before King Festus. He said this, I am not mad, O most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. I mean, he literally stood before the king and he says, you know what I'm saying is true. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, who does that if you're you're literally making it up, right? One final thing that attests to the truthfulness and the credibility of the New Testament and I always, I always go back to this. They were adamant, adamant about writing the truth, even when it made them look bad. You know, we, we see a lot of autobiographies today of people, and they tend to, when, when things make you look bad, they tend to kind of tweak the story a little bit, right? But the apostles and the disciples did not do that. Mark 3.21 says this, When his family heard about this, talking about Jesus, they went to take charge of him, for they said... He is out of his mind. His own family thought he was crazy, and the disciples wrote that down. Remember when they fought for places in the kingdom? Hey, make me, you know, make me. And Jesus said, what's wrong with (laughs) y'all, right? After Jesus' arrest, what do they do? They all run. They all deny, right? Peter denies. They, they, They talk about Jesus being one place he wasn't able to work miracles. They wrote that down. When he gets on the cross... Uh, Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? They wrote that down. Their ignorance of the ministry, their inability to understand what Jesus was here for, they wrote that down. And as I said, his family's unbelief. See, they, when you're telling the truth, they were adamant about telling the truth. Even if it made them and Jesus look bad, they still wrote it. The, the final thing, test that we put the Bible through is called the external evidence test. And by the way, I'm gonna, these are very, I got a million of these, so I had, like I said, it was three weeks when I originally did this, but uh, I put it in one. The Old Testament contains 333 prophecies regarding the Messiah, and most of those were fulfilled in the first coming of of Christ. Um, I'll give you one example, Isaiah 53. Y'all all know Isaiah 53, right? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That book, or that chapter, I'm sorry, has... 15 fulfilled prophecies of Christ just in one chapter. In fact, if I was to stand here today and just go to Winn-Dixie and open that chapter and start to read it, everybody in Winn-Dixie, and I said, who is this about? They would all say what? Jesus. I mean, it's that clear. It's that obvious that it's about Jesus. In fact, it's so obvious that scholars said there is no way 
or skeptics said there's no way that was written before Jesus died. They literally believe that somebody wrote that chapter and put it in Isaiah after Jesus died. And for a long time, the most recent copy of the book of Isaiah was in 900 A.D. Everybody with me? So we went all the way back and we tried to find copies, and the oldest one we found was in 900 A.D. And scholars said, see? Skeptics said, see? Somebody put that in there after he died. And then in 1947, a little boy was out in the desert, and he was looking for some sheep, and he threw a rock. And a rock went down in a cave, and he heard a, he heard a breaking, something break. And he went down into that cave, and he made one of the most amazing discoveries that we've had, and we call it the Dead Sea Scrolls. And inside of those, uh, those clay pots was a copy of the book of Isaiah. And they took that copy... And it was exactly, word for word, what we have in our Bible today. And when they carbon dated it, it was carbon dated 400 years before Christ was born. 400 years before Christ was born. That is the amazing Bible. Archaeology continues to find things. As late as 1961, skeptics said there was no such person as Pontius Pilate. He didn't exist. They'd never found anything in Roman records. They'd never found anything. That, and so they said, look, they made him up. There was nobody named Pontius Pilate. But then they went to Caesarea. They did an excavation in 1961. And they uncovered, uncovered uh, uh, what's called a stele, S-T-E-L-E. And on that stele it said, Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. I've got hundreds of those. King David didn't exist until they find thing that says King David. King David's uh, 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 his his castle or whatever he lived in didn't exist, and then they found they they find it. I mean, it just it just goes on and on and on and on. Listen, listen the Bible needs. We don't need anything like this to corroborate the Bible. I said that when we start. I believe the Bible is the word of God because God has convinced me of that. I don't need these evidences. I don't need any of this stuff. But I want you to note that no scientific, no archaeological find has ever, ever disproven even a single word of Scripture. And in fact, the more they make, the more Scripture is proven true over and over uh, again. I want to close with this, and that is the behavior of the apostles. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified upside down. He said he, he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that his Savior did. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword. John, uh, John the Revelator is the only one that died a natural death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Bartholomew was crucified. And James, the son of Zebedee, was killed with a sword. Eleven of the twelve apostles were martyred because of their belief in a resurrected Savior. Are you with me? Eleven of the twelve went to horrible deaths, tortured and killed because of their belief in a resurrected Savior. Now you may say to me, well, a lot of people have died for a lie. What does that prove? And by the way, there's, there's, there's Muslims blowing themselves up around the world dying for a lie. That is absolutely true. But you see, those Muslims think that they're, they, don't, they believe the lie to be the truth. You see, if the apostles, if the apostles, if the resurrection of Jesus was a lie, the apostles knew it was a lie. Because they're the ones that would have made it up. 
So you're telling me that 11 of 12 men are going to die horrible deaths for something that they know is a lie? Come on. That is beyond belief. Nobody would do that. They died a martyr's death because they saw him. They saw him. They knew he was alive, and they were willing to die for a risen Savior. Listen, as I said earlier, none of this is, I'm not here to prove this is the Word of God. That's up to the Holy Spirit. I am immovably assured way down deep in my soul that this is the Word of God. I, you know, I hear people get all excited sometime about finding Noah's Ark and all that. And, you know, and I'm like, whatever. Who cares? If they find it, great. If they don't find it, it makes no difference to me whatsoever. I know this book is true. I know it's true. It is an amazing Bible, and it is worthy. It is worthy of our trust, and it is worthy of our faith. Let's pray. Father.